We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined by Robert Smith. I mean, Mario Puig. Mario, what's going on, man? Good. Um, I'm kind of changing my outfit a little bit, my look a little bit. Uh, I was referencing the tweet. Uh, for, for those yeah. of you who don't follow Mario on Twitter, he, he posted a, an update of how he was how he's doing March 1 and how he's doing uh, April 1 yesterday. Yeah, I actually deleted that, so oh, sorry, no one can it. go see it, but uh, yeah, basically I, I look like just some, you know, relatively normal schlub at, at a wiffle ball game in the left photo, uh, but by the left, by the, and I had like a, like closely shaved head with a beard, and then uh, Robert Smith, I don't know if you've seen him ever, or especially lately, uh, but he some at some point after like 1995 or something, he got markedly more plump, but he kept his... <laughs> He kept his, uh, you know, youthful, long, unkempt, uh, 
black hair. The goth sensibilities. And, and eyeliner and lipstick. So he, he was doing the thing that he, he was dressing the exact same way as he did in the 80s. And uh, he's like a 60-year-old man now. Uh, and that is also what I am. It's a uh, big, big mood right now. Yeah, and I look that way too. I I, uh, I look like a sixty-year-old uh, goth who just like never stopped doing the goth thing. It's uh, but I just started doing it in the last month. That's that's when I got goth. My uh, my contribution to that meme. There there were some pretty funny ones yesterday. I thought of me on March first versus me on April one. Uh, mine was like when when Homer Simpson just uh, picks up the bi- big. Uh, packet of like craft singles or whatever he's like oh 64 <laughs> slices of american cheese and then by the end of it he's just got this big pile of plastic wrappers all around him he's in his tidy whiteies at the t- kitchen table and marge asked if he ate all the cheese and he's like i think i'm blind <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh i bought a few things other than american cheese so i haven't gotten any like food-based uh physical deteriorations yet but um i don't know we'll see i'm I might need to do something like that to entertain myself. Yeah, yeah. eating all that cheese is a pretty good bit there. Um, so today uh, we are going to dive into uh, Mario's most recent article talking about uh, the Browns and the movement that they've had uh, over the course of this offseason. We're also going to get into the Falcons a little bit. Uh, but before that, uh, one more lighthearted thing we got to discuss. Maybe, maybe in podcast time we're a little bit past due on this one, but... We both have watched Tiger King now. Do you have any thoughts for the people? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I usually don't quite participate in these, these mass uh, like pop culture events like this one, but this was definitely up my alley, even though it was very popular because I, I love insane people. Um, I, I like uh, just the, the kind of um, – just I don't know, like the, this otherworldly like vision that this guy had, uh, and, and it's totally insane and unreasonable. Don't get me wrong, but like I respect that he that he like pursued that sort of insanity and and grew as powerful as he did. Uh, it's it's not great the stuff that he was into, uh, but but I do I do respect like uh, the audacity that he showed. Up until the point of, uh, I guess, his television or his internet television show, where, um, of course, Joe w- was uh, saying some stuff about her friend Carol that he should not have, nope. and uh, I thought that was what someone would get arrested for because I, I swear I thought he said on that show like, "I'm gonna kill Carol," which I thought you get arrested if you do that, um, but he didn't, and then he got actually arrested and charged and and much bigger charges it seemed like for getting set up in a netflix documentary like the guys who set him up said to the interviewer like yeah we're setting him up because we don't we <laughs> the don't chucky wanna, looking like, guy yeah like it will all like how and uh the uh the the allen guy like they were both just like talking about like yeah, so we told Alan to say this so that the prosecution would do this, and it was like, oh man, yeah. Does the prosecution not know that this was that this documentary was getting made? Because I don't know how I don't know how you can say in a Netflix documentary like, yeah, we're framing this guy for something, and then like the guy gets successfully convicted. Like that's I don't know. I guess that's just what the future is like. Everything. Everything is on fire. Everything is negotiable, and now you can you can talk about your conspiracy to frame someone in a Netflix documentary, uh, and it gives and, it more power. Yeah, if anything, people are like, "Wow, 
I didn't realize, uh, you know, th- this is proof that, uh, that he's guilty, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I th- in my opinion, he shouldn't have been convicted for that. He should have been probably arrested and had his show shut down, uh, like in the first episode. Um, and it looked like he did hundreds of those things <laughs> with no audience on the internet. Um, but yeah, it's like, I, I figured he should have gotten arrested for making a threat, not, uh, trying to purchase a contract against Carol's life. Cause that barely seems like it might've happened. And to whatever extent that it happened, it seemed like those guys were just kind of like saying like, I don't know. It, I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but it, in my opinion, it's basically a story about, um, it's like a much grimmer version of trailer park boys. Kind <laughs> of like, uh, it, it felt like an extended universe of the trailer park boys where it got like a little more grand theft auto or something like that. <laughs> I love that comp because I'm, I'm obviously a huge, uh, trailer park boys, uh, enthusiast as well. And, you know, to your point about like the, the contract and stuff and like the sort of self incrimination on the show, I thought it was so funny the way that, that Carol would be like, they said I would use a meat grinder. I couldn't even fit his hand in there. Like, you know, just little things <laughs> that it's like, you're not exactly exonerating yourself here. Or like, um, Doc this is, t- talking about the hit. off potential in this. Oh my God. Doc being like, look, three grand to, to get a hit on somebody. Forget it. You got to pay 50, oh, 60, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100K at least to even start he's talking like, about it. So three he grand. breaks out like, you clearly don't understand interstate uh, hitman retainer <laughs> fee structures. It's like, uh, yeah, I guess I never thought about it. I didn't realize you got to pony up another 20000 for each state that they cross. Like, I didn't. I don't know what he was referring to. Like, I only understand crime through like TV shows and stuff. And there's, this is the first one about this particular kind of crime. So, uh, th- there's unfortunately no, the wire, uh, to, to let me know how, how, uh, you, you know, the, the, like that shows you like the drug trade, how it gets in the country, how it, how it gets on the streets. David Simon working at the Myrtle beach Gazette. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we need a David Simon thing where it's like talking about it's, it's, it's like a, the hitman economy. And uh, for some reason, like 80 percent of their commerce is probably from like big cat ranch owners. Like they're all just trying to get each other killed constantly. And like there's no other kind of contract kill uh, in the country, basically. I think that's what's going on here. It's God, it's it's so good. Um, I, I think the industry would be completely underwater if not for the big cat ranches. So once again, the Tigers save the day. Um, so. Uh, let's let's pull a hard left turn here. Let's uh, let's get into some some football talk here, some pigskin, if you will. Um, so you wrote this big article this week about the Browns. Uh, before we get into the into brass tacks here, give us a general uh, you know kind of overview of, of what you were looking for and what sort of made you pick the Browns as as a study piece for this week, and what did you find? Well, I was watching some tweets that people had made about uh, the Browns offense and I just basically was surprised by some of the things that I saw people saying and I I, I thought uh, this seems wrong to me I should probably say you know something about how I view the situation and basically I, I think uh, I think people are fundamentally misunderstanding Austin Hooper and and the thing uh, the ways that he could change the offense the way that they probably intend to build the offense around him 
based on the contract that they gave him in free agency. Uh, technically, he's making less per year than Hunter Henry, but Hunter Henry is only on the franchise tag. Uh, so as far as actual extension contracts, Hooper is the most highly paid tight end in the league at this point. And that's just one of those categorical things. Like if you're the team paying for that price, you're not paying up just to make this guy a, a part-time player. Like you, you, you think this guy is really important. And I think that we have reason to believe that uh, Hooper's introduction will probably not hurt Odell Beckham and Nick Chubb as much as it'll hurt Jarvis Landry and Kareem Hunt. Yet most people are taking it the exact opposite way, or at least I'm basing that mostly on the best ball 10 ADP uh, after March 16th, which is when Austin Hooper agreed to terms with the Browns. And what's interesting is Nick Chubb slid a little bit, basically like a point, uh, like he went from about eighth overall to about ninth overall. Looks like he could slip further. I've seen some people talking about how they don't even think he's worth a top 12 pick anymore. And I've gotten him at 12th overall in some drafts. So uh, I've seen it happen. Um, and I, I don't think that's right. And I, I will we'll get into why. Uh, Odell Beckham is a little tougher because I don't even know if that guy's going to be on the team Uh tomorrow let alone in in uh you know the regular season but i basically think people are not thinking through how the structure could possibly work in practice like of, of this offense you got people kind of like saying yeah austin hooper's there but if you look at the backfield last year kareem hunt and nick chubb played about the same number of snaps and uh they averaged both uh 12.5 ppr uh fantasy points per game after kareem hunt came back from suspension and it's like that's interesting or whatever, but you realize a third of those snaps that Kareem Hunt played weren't at running back, right? And you know who's going to play those snaps now, right? It's it's going to be Austin Hooper. Um, the, a lot of those snaps that Kareem Hunt played last year were in the slot, were uh, even at kind of like H-back tight end. He played 12 snaps at fullback. I really thought that I that, that was PFF crediting uh, 12 snaps at fullback. I could have swore I saw him do more than that. But uh, yeah, he was doing like lead blocking for Chubb, stuff like that. And uh, you can you can think of it, you can, you can do a thing like where you look at the points per game from last year and just decide like, and that's how it's going to be going forward. But I think the fact that Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt were on the field at the same time so much last year because of those 100 snaps at non-running back positions, I think that means that basically those snaps are going to Hooper. Uh, and even if they don't, that part of the field where Hooper functions is the same part of the field where Kareem Hunt functioned in the passing game. And it's, it's pretty close to where Jarvis Landry uh, ideally functions too, which is to say the slot. Um, so yeah, I saw people saying like, you should take Kareem Hunt in the sixth or seventh round instead of Nick Chubb in the second. And I thought that was one of the worst ideas I'd seen in a really long time in fantasy football Twitter. So um, yeah, basically seeing, seeing people talk that way about the situation kind of alarmed me. And I was like, I, I basically made the uh, conclusion that a bunch of people are confused about this team right now and uh, laid out, you know, both both uh, the team investments and the skill sets, like what we have reason to believe these players are capable of kind of weighing against what there is up for grabs in the offense. And I think it's pretty clear that Landry and Hunt project the worst as far as somebody paying to subsidize okay. Hooper's production. Um, so w- let's let's keep going on Hunt here for a minute because I'm very interested to to hear your overall views here. Um, when it comes to Hunt, 
obviously the Browns are working with a new coach here who's an offensive-minded coach coming over from, from uh, Minnesota and, and, an, and a new general manager as well. So do you feel like part of uh, Kareem Hunt's snap share last year was, was that old uh, regime with, with Kitchens and Dorsey feeling beholden to, you know, given the, the heat that they took and the, and the capital that, that it took to go ahead and get Kareem Hunt, that they, they felt once the suspension was over, we got to kind of force feed some snaps to him no matter what. And do you think that, A, uh, this new staff will feel a little bit less uh, compelled to do that if, if it, you know, just based on their overall preference and how they want to run the offense? And B, um, you know, how does what Stefanski's tendencies uh, on tape from from Minnesota show in the sense that um, what Hunt's role could be alongside Chubb could uh, could they be could Hunt be used in the slot the same way that he was a year ago um, with all of this uh, now now baked in? Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns because there's there's several moving parts, like you said, and even in Stefanski's case, we don't know for sure what this guy wants to do. And one of the theories that you'll see, uh, it might even be the most popular one right now, is that he's going to run a predominantly two tight end offense. And uh, I think Scott Petrak is the guy's name of Brown Zone or some some sort of Brown site like that. He wrote an article, I I think, on Monday about how he thinks that they're going to run two tight end 55% of the time or more. And I don't think that that's quite right. But even even if we say that it is... That's if, if that scenario occurs, I think that alone is enough reason to be very worried about Jarvis Landry, because if they're running a two tight end offense 55 uh, percent of the time, then that means 45 percent of the time at most could Jarvis Landry be playing in the slot. And he's not the kind of guy you want running outside. He doesn't really jump. He doesn't have much speed like he's a very good route runner. He knows how to play football, but he doesn't have tools to, to get open against outside corners like you really need Jarvis Landry in the slot to maximize his abilities. So if he's only playing the slot at most 45% of the time, and here's the thing, he's not playing 45% of the time, even in that case in the slot, because Austin Hooper is going to be playing there at least, I don't know, 35% of the time. And if he's playing there 35% of the time, uh, the, the only way that Jarvis Landry would be in the slot in that formation is if they're in a four wide uh, with Hooper being one slot receiver and then Landry the opposite one or if they're in trips and they're both in the slot. So we're, if if that's what's really going to happen, then in that case, Jarvis Landry would be looking at a, a slot exposure of like as low as 20 percent or something like that, Oof. which isn't good. He's a, he's a slot receiver. You, you don't you don't pay him fourteen point five five million to play outside. And by the way, that's more than they'll be paying Odell Beckham this year. I, that Jarvis Landry contract is not good, uh, but they're still on the hook. There's two point nine five. I want to say two point nine five million in cap penalty if they move him this year. I think he's for sure gone after this year. Um, but uh, yeah, in any case. I, I don't quite believe the two tight end theory, though, because that was only something that Minnesota did last year. Uh, the year before that, uh, they, they ran something like 600, 500 fewer tight end snaps. And I think it's pretty clear, at least in last year's case, they went so two tight end because they had Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith. But the third receiver was Chad Beebe. Mm-hmm. And then Chad Beebe got hurt. And uh, you're down to B.C. Johnson and Treadwell or whatever. So, yeah, if your third receiver is uh, Chad Beebe and then you end up on your fourth and fifth receiver, I'd probably rather just go with the second tight end, especially if the second tight end is someone like Irv Smith. So uh, David Njoku, I still like, by the way, and he's still on the team. 
but I can't imagine that he's realistically in their long-term plans. So he's not, he's got one year left on his contract. If he sticks around, I don't really see how he plays very much. Like I just don't see how they make Odell Beckham, uh, Jarvis Landry, especially with the amount that Landry would have to play outside. Uh, so I think there's a chance that one of Beckham or Landry could be moved. Uh, Landry's case, it would probably be a cut. In Beckham's case, it would be a trade. Uh, and they can do that easily because they have no cap penalty on his contract since they acquired him by trade. Um, but yeah, if, if it's if it's a two tight end offense with Austin Hooper and then David Njoku out there 55 percent of the time and then Hooper still playing in the slot upwards of 30, 35 percent, then it, it's like what, what what is what realistically does that ask of Jarvis Landry and can he possibly give the returns they want? I don't really know. I still think there's a pretty good chance they take a receiver at that 10th pick. Uh, if not then yeah they're probably going offensive tackle but if they cut Jerry or sorry if they if they drafted Jerry Judy or CD Lamb and then they cut Jarvis Landry or they traded Odell Beckham that would be very unsurprising to me uh so yeah i i think that Jarvis Landry, i i don't particularly think they're going to tr- to cut Landry though and i don't particularly think they're going to trade Beckham so i'm just imagining this offense where if they have any prayer of getting the utility out of Landry that they want then they probably need to keep a three-wide base so that they can keep that slot position open for him. And they don't want two tight ends in the three-receiver set because then it forces Landry back outside. So okay. um, I, I don't know how they resolve that. And I, the, some part of me still thinks there's a chance they cut or trade Joku since he only has one year left. But uh, I don't think Stefanski's work in Minnesota last year is evidence of much because it, it was one year and he was there more than one year. This was the only time he did that. Okay, so let's you, – you brought up the great point when it came to Minnesota and it's like of course they use more two tight ends when you're you're working with Olabisi Johnson as your number three type of deal looking at the Browns depth chart right now when you get beyond Beckham and Landry it is a little bit it's it's akin to Diggs and Thielen in Minnesota where it's like after them it is Damian Ratley and Kaderil Hodge I'm not familiar with his stylings no offense to uh to Mr. Hodge there um but looking at at that I mean, it does. It would make sense for either the two tight ends set to be employed, or like you said, the Browns go ahead and draft another receiver, pre- preferably an outside receiver. Right. So it could go either way, and I like Njoku, so I I have nothing against building around that guy. It's just they have one year left on him. They have this tenth pick coming up, and we know Judy and Lamb profile pretty well in that range. It, I just think they're a good dark horse bet for one of those two guys, uh, even if even if the the safer money is still on the offensive tackle pick. Uh, but in any case, you are right. After Beckham and Landry, and both of those guys have substantial durability worries. Landry's on the shelf until at least August with a hip lab, hip labrum that he had surgically repaired. So if they don't add a receiver, then yeah, they might have to go too tight end quite a bit because Njoku is definitely a better uh, rep on the field than whoever the next receiver in line is. The problem with that is in the Minnesota case, they were moving their slot guy outside and that guy was Adam Thielen. And in, you know, Thielen, whatever you think about him, he's a better receiver outside than Jarvis Landry. I think he's much better overall. Uh, but in the slot, yeah, you might be able to to say like Landry can compete with Thielen there. He can't compete with Thielen outside. Thielen is a, still a good outside receiver. Landry almost certainly is not. So if that is their plan, if they are thinking of a two tight end base with Landry playing the vast majority of his snaps at outside receiver, you know they're they're free to 
to do whatever bad ideas they like, you know, but it's, it's not, we don't have much reason to think it's going to work if they do that. That's making their offense profoundly slow on uh, basically like three fourths of the field. Beckham is of course very explosive, but Landry is a guy who was running close to a four seven coming out of LSU. Uh, he had like a 30 inch vertical, something like that. He he's only gotten by in the NFL on his hands and his route running. And it's, it's, it's harder it's harder to get open outside than it is in the slot and, and his lack of athleticism is probably going to show up in a painful way in the box score uh, if they go that route. So uh, they're free to do it. I don't know if it's a good idea though. Okay. Um, so th- this wasn't uh, like a huge bullet point within your article, um, but it- it's a question that, you know, I think it is the elephant in the room when you talk about the Browns and the Browns offense as a whole, if Baker Mayfield looks more like rookie or Baker Mayfield or looks like an improved version of that as opposed to whatever the hell that was last year. Does some of the clunkiness uh, that 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 uh, could lie on the surface here with, with the personnel groupings and, and the scheme here be a little bit smoothed over if Baker is just Baker? Yeah, if he, if he made the pie much bigger, then that would be good for Landry, first and foremost, I think. Um, I still think Kareem Hunt would get the pinch worse than anyone else in that scenario. And uh, I guess I can go a little bit more into that reasoning. Uh, but yeah, if, if to me, if Baker Mayfield throws for 4,500, 4,600 yards, that's something that would open something up for Landry or I guess possibly Njoku if, if they're going to go the two tight end route. Um, but I think it would be Landry who would be first to benefit. Uh, you know, that, that might be kind of a too obvious of a thing to say since he's all receiving production, whereas Hunt... Part of the theory with him is that he'll also get carries and obviously Baker's production going up will will go more toward Landry's benefit than, than any particular running back. Um, but, yeah, that would that scenario would be something where I'd say, well, yeah, if Baker's throwing for that much, it's, it's not like I'm thinking Odell Beckham gets eighteen hundred. So, uh, sure. Yeah, that would that would probably clear things open for Landry. But I still think Kareem Hunt um, probably doesn't get that much of it because of so much of his production last year being from those non running back positions. And uh, maybe they go, I don't know. Like the, the, the thing to remember last year is like, they were kind of running a two tight end offense with Kareem hunt or, or sorry, they were, they were using Kareem hunt like a tight end so much last year. And it's, it's just like with Hooper there, I just don't see what, what negotiable room there is anymore for hunt. It's like, He's good at some things, yes, but we have reason to believe the Browns intend to utilize Hooper for those things first. So Hunt could be kind of like the next guy up at a lot of functions in this offense, but he's not the first guy up at any of them. And I think that that means you shouldn't take him as soon as the sixth or seventh round. To me, that makes him more like a 10th or 11th round kind of player, like a similar sort of category as like Tony Pollard or something like that. Uh, I don't I don't think there's there's much reason to believe that there's any scenario where Kareem Hunt could, uh, you know, I don't I don't think if Baker Mayfield goes nuts that that it will necessarily mean a whole lot for Hunt because it's just he doesn't play this. It's hard to project the snaps it would take for him to even, you know, be in position to take a stab at the pie, even if it got bigger. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's some interesting stuff with Hooper and especially the, the complete void of tight end functions in this offense last year. Uh, basically Austin Hooper alone got more targets through probably seven games. And that was on something like, uh, 500 snaps or something like that. Uh, that was, that was a higher target count. And of course the catch, the catch count, the, the receiving yardage, the touchdowns. 
uh, or actually not the touchdowns. They had for some reason the Cleveland tight ends had like eight or nine touchdowns last year, but they they were they were anemic in every other aspect. And uh, Hooper is going to draw targets at a, at a rate that the offense just had no place for last year. Um, I'm trying to get uh, I'm trying to find this one. Okay, yeah. So that the Browns tight ends last year had 41 catches for 491 yards. Hooper had 526 on 46 catches through seven games. So he's he's going to take up uh, a lot of targets that I mean he might harm the target count for uh, Odell Beckham for all I know uh, if he if he takes a target rate like he had in Atlanta into Cleveland or anything especially close to it because um, yeah the Browns tight ends had 69 targets on 1300 snaps last year Hooper had his 73rd target by his 572nd snap so. That's he's he's used at like four times the frequency that they used tight ends last year. So they either signed that guy to completely put him to waste in the offense or they're going to completely redesign the offense around him. And, uh, you know, at that at that point, if you're talking about Kareem Hunt, especially uh, you're you're kind of putting him out of business in the receiving game or at least the returns that people got accustomed to last year. Like they're going to Hooper like they just got to let that go. So. If Kareem Hunt, in, if that is true, then Kareem Hunt can only provide fantasy value in that case from the backfield. And from the backfield, there still probably are not that many targets left because this is an offense that still has Oda Beckham, Jarvis Landry, Austin Hooper. Like, yes, Kareem Hunt is probably a better pass catching threat than Nick Chubb, but the way this offense is designed, there might not be that many specifically going to the running back. And uh, in terms of the running ability, I know people like th- th- there are some Kareem Hunt truthers out there who like to say like oh he's a better runner than Nick Chubb too he's he's quicker than Nick Chubb it's he's he's more balanced than Nick Chubb and, and what people got to understand is that balance in itself doesn't mean a whole lot in a skill set terms like it's good to have a balanced offense in the sense that you can threaten fr- from you know more more credible looks and, and it's harder for the defense to guess correctly what you're going to do but balance isn't necessary for a running back skill set when you have the sort of extremes, the, the extreme strengths that Chubb does. It's like you're not grading on a rotisserie fantasy scoring basis. Like the sum is what matters. The point total is what matters. And Nick Chubb is so outrageously good as a runner that he puts forth a point total that Kareem Hunt just cannot catch up with. And it doesn't matter how much quicker Kareem Hunt is. It doesn't matter how much cooler you think his jukes are. <laughs> what, what happens with the rushing production is Nick Chubb always beats him. That's all there is to it. Like, they need returns. Nick Chubb provides them. Kareem Hunt would provide them, too. He's, he's, a, he's a totally good pure runner. It's just that we have a lot of evidence that Nick Chubb is the best pure runner in the NFL. And so... If it's unlikely for anyone in particular to beat him, I don't know why would I, I would expect Kareem Hunt of all people when he's on a one-year restricted free agent tender. And by the way, that's a, that's another thing that I think is confusing some people. And that happened on the March 16th data point too. Uh, Hooper agreed to terms and, and Kareem Hunt got the second round restricted free agent tender. But – that is not like the team saying we value him as as much as a second round pick or like we're equating him to that. It's like they're looking at it from a service time angle and he's a restricted free agent for this amount of accrued service time in the NFL. Uh, but to them, it's just getting one year of cheap, really good, really versatile uh, backup 
who's going to walk in free agency in 2021. And given Kareem Hunt's background and, you know, God forbid, if Nick Chubb gets hurt and Kareem Hunt has to start, he would have a huge season. And he would go probably, even with his history, for a decent amount of money in free agency next year. So basically, it's not that the it's not that the Browns looked at Kareem Hunt and thought, oh, we need a second round pick and or, or whatever else. It's that they said, you know, we would rather have a second round pick than anything less than getting uh, Kareem Hunt for one year for a cheap dollar amount, and then mm-hmm. we end up getting like a third round kick back to us in a year and a half anyway. It's it's just a way of like kind of subsidizing your own expenses. And, uh, you know, they, they know Kareem Hunt can do certain things really well and they don't have to pay much to keep him around for one year. And they're, they're going to get basically compensated uh, just for having a good player on their team another year. OK, so bottom line here, what is your overall expectation here with, with all of all of that in mind? Obviously, a loaded question. You, you went, you know, way into the deepest of the details here. Is there a bounce back scenario with the the pieces at hand here with the Browns and with the new uh, new scheme, new coach, new general manager, um, all of that above um, all of that baked in here? What does that mean for not just the bounce back overall for for the Browns here, who are arguably the most disappointing team in the NFL last year, but also those key pieces as far as their fantasy draft stock goes? Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, it's a tough division still. They got to play basically four of those games are almost a waste uh, going against the Steelers and the Ravens. I think both of their defenses are going to be very good again. I think the Ravens defense will be a lot better than it was, or at least uh, it'll be a lot better against the run than it was last year. And they're they're probably going to get more sacks and they probably won't have to blitz quite as much as they did last year. Uh, So, yeah, Pittsburgh and Baltimore scare me a little bit. I can't lie. Uh, But in the other 12 games and even in, in, I don't know, if if they could probably do well in one or two of those four games. They killed the Ravens in Baltimore last year. That was like one of the bigger anomalous games of the year, but still. Yeah, weird stuff happens and, and, you know, these things have a way of working themselves out. So I'm not literally saying like, you know, you can only get 12 starts out of these guys. Um, I'm, I'm just and especially Chubb. It's like I will start Chubb against anybody. I don't care who it is. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's a tough division. So it's it's a it's a little bit of a needle that we have to thread and they have to still answer a question at least at uh, left tackle. Or I don't know if they plan on Jack Conklin moving from the right tackle spot to the left tackle spot. But if they if they weren't planning on that. They still don't know who's playing left tackle. Uh, that offensive line was really bad last year, uh, which is another thing I want to mention real quickly. Uh, that offensive line was trash, and Nick Chubb was still doing this like like automatic like he's been. Kevin Stefanski, if he learned anything from Gary Kubiak, and, and by the way, that's another thing that's being kind of talked about with the scheme is like uh, the two tight end thing, and then Stefanski's going to do zone blocking like they did in Minnesota. That wasn't something Stefanski always did. Gary Kubiak showed up last year, and then they adapted uh, with – with Kubiak and his input and it looks I guess like Stefanski was uh you know converted or something like he he's take he's trying to emulate Kubiak's methods and it makes sense Kubiak's been very successful the Vikings had success he just got hired as a head coach for basically doing what Gary Kubiak did last year so uh it makes sense for them to keep doing that but if there is some of that real like Shanahan zone blocking wizardry about to happen in that offensive line we might see what happens with Nick Chubb in a good offensive line this year. And that's something that, you know, you can't really factor that into the ADP or something because he's already expensive. It's like I, that's not a reason to move him from nine to seven or something like that. 
But it's something we should keep in mind. And if Nick Chubb's offensive line kind of makes the jump that the Minnesota one did from 2018 to 2019, if the Browns improve similarly like that from 2019 to 2020, Nick Chubb could average like five and a half yards a carry That's while a running for 1,600 detail. yards. Because, uh, yeah, he's he's insane for how explosive he is with the volume also. It's it's like he's he puts up the kind of big play percentages that guys who just take, you know, draws on third and 17 and hurry up normally have. And yet he's doing it as a workhorse. So that's that just shows he's, he's basically infallible as a runner. And he has a career average of 5.08 yards per carry with bad offensive lines. So Cleveland offensive line, I don't know. I'm not I'm not going to assume it's going to be good. But if it is, then he could take to another level yet as a runner. And I, I don't think people are taking that seriously enough. Um, so, yeah, I think there's various ways. I, I like Baker still. I'm, I am a little worried that he's more of like a Jake Delhomme kind of quarterback than like a Aaron Rodgers kind of thing. Um, he, he's definitely not the most accurate guy. And when he when he's getting sloppy, when he's getting rattled like last year, it can go off the rails in a, in a really ugly way. Um, but I still think he's got an innate ability of kind of like anticipating um, – like anticipating physical movement and like that spatial intelligence where he just kind of, he has that, that intuition of, you know, this is a good risky throw to make. And you know, that, that kind of, that kind of insight that few people have, like most quarterbacks look at something and just see like no option. And, and Baker Mayfield might look and kind of, uh, it'll, it'll look ugly and it'll be like ill-advised in some objective sense, but he, he kind of just makes those risky throws that, that pay off. Like he knows when it's a good time to take a risk and as long as the team around him is is decently composed, I think he'll bounce back uh, by just default. Uh, if only because of how you know totally botched their whole team was last year. It's like it, they don't even really need to get better to get better. Um, but if they do get better, then yeah, I, I like it because I'm a big fan of Odell Beckham still. If if Landry's if they're cool with him being their third best pass catcher, he should be fine. If they if they don't need more from him than that, he should be fine. I think Hooper's totally good. So, uh, yeah, they got a lot going for them if they can just get that offensive line, um, you know, back to basic functionality. Yeah, that would be that would be good to see, and that that would you know I think be a springboard for the rest of that offense being able to to sing, uh, pretty much there. So. Uh, Great stuff there. Um, we were talking a lot about uh, one Georgia running back. Let's shift gears to another one who is back in the ATL here. We got Todd Gurley going to the Falcons. Let's talk about the impact of that as well as and then the overall impression here of what the Falcons have done uh, thus far in the offseason and what they might do in the draft. Yeah, we can we can do like a shorter version of the Falcons of what we did with the Browns, kind of piggybacking on the Hooper thing, because, of course, Hooper left Atlanta to go to Cleveland. And with him leaving that Atlanta offense, there's quite a bit of, of a void of a lot of you know targets and snaps. And uh, Hooper was so good with those targets, too. It's it's a bit of a concern for Matt Ryan, I think, because Hooper was super automatic. Like he, he was Michael Thomas at tight end, basically, uh, the past two years. And if you remove that from an offense just as Hooper going to Cleveland is going to fundamentally redesign the Cleveland offense, him leaving Atlanta will force them to look different this year. And they traded for Hayden Hurst. They paid a lot to get him. Uh, congratulations, John. Thank you. Uh, yeah, they traded for Hayden Hurst and he's going to be their starter, no doubt. And he's going to be probably pretty decent. Like he's, he's not a bad tight end. Um, he'll be fine, but Hooper's a very good tight end. And at the particular sort of receiving threat that he posed, he's kind of unmatched. Like even guys like, Kelsey and Kittle and Ertz, they're great, of course, and, and they're 
better than Hooper, but there's like a couple things that Hooper does better than anybody. And then he's not a big play threat like those other guys are. So that's, that's why we don't, that's that's why he's not as good basically. Um, but in terms of just moving the chains, the guy is pretty uncommonly good. And, uh, Hurst doesn't, have any shot of matching that like he could do a good job this year he's it's just not fair to expect him to be as good as hooper so it's interesting well the the falcons are going to have to figure out something because with their trade of muhammad sanu to new england they never they don't have an obvious replacement plan for their slot position and if they are if they're moving muhammad sanu from the offense and they don't have a slot solution yet and all that they add otherwise is hayden hurst then I think that's going to have to push some some functions to the outside receivers, and maybe it's a diminished return in efficiency. Like I'm not saying Julio Jones just picks up, uh, you know, another 20 targets at his customary 68% completion rate, 10 yards a target. It might drop to something like 8.4 because the safeties lean on him that much harder with Hooper gone. Um, but there's going to be uh, there's going to be a slack there. And and I think Calvin Ridley's a great bet to break out, do that slack. I, th- I think, uh, you know, Julio's probably maxed out, or at least it would be unfair to expect him to do more than he already does. But Ridley's got room for growth in his numbers. So I think he's going to pick up a lot of that Hooper uh, departure. And then, I don't know, if they're going into next year with, like, Russell Gage as their slot receiver, that's just not going to work. Um, but if they do add someone formidable in the draft, then I guess might have to reassess uh just how high we get our expectations for Ridley, but I'm presuming he he will break out this year. Okay, and um, in the backfield specifically, yeah, I wanted like, to get I wanted to get to that. Maybe it, it, I don't mean to like cut you off, but I I think oh, there's yeah. there's an interesting parallel here potentially where you know when we were talking about the Browns and we were talking about Kareem Hunt, uh, a lot of his utility being as a pass catcher, and you know I don't I don't think that Gurley is necessarily going to be split out into the into the slot or anything like that, but we've seen Gurley multiple times in his career be targeted over 80 times come up with with 60 or close to it uh reception so not necessarily in terms of where Gurley's alignment is but in terms of just area of the field does Gurley maybe get an elevated pass catching uh workload here um as a result of, of Hooper being gone and the fact that uh they can't they can't just one-to-one transfer all of those uh intermediate targets to Hayden Hurst Right, yeah. So some of that slack from Hooper leaving, uh, it's it's not going to be picked up by Hurst and, and Russell Gage. If he's their slot receiver, there's going to be slack yet. And it might not be the passing game that picks it up. It, they might have to just give the ball to Gurley on the ground that much more than they did with Devontae Freeman. Or, like you said, they could have to lean on Gurley that much more as a pass catcher. So uh, there's still a chance that the Falcons take a good, a really good, I should say, running back prospect in the second round. Um, but even if they do, there, there's going to be a lot of slack, especially if they have that week. If they go from Mohamed Sanu to Russell Gage at slot receiver, there's going to be enough, I think, for Gurley to hit his uh, return and for this uh, this second round rookie to, to do something useful. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that given how much Todd Gurley broke tackles last year and how much yardage he generated after contact, it's one of those things like we know he's going to expire eventually, but I don't think it's quite correct to say that he's expired right now. No, you're not, you're not allowed to say that he did anything anything good last year i thought right everyone remembered the rams were everything was so rosy there and it was only todd that was screwing things up mm-hmm. um but yeah i think i think it's like uh you know it's there's too much slack and he has been too good too recently to uh not do something helpful there like if, he, if he's not good i think it's because of the knee basically blew up and that could happen i don't know but uh, in the meantime, this is an offense that used to hum, you know, at, at like 5,000 passing yards a year, Devontae Freeman being like a top 
uh, what would you say, like top like 10, 12 yeah, kind of fantasy right back. Range. That was with Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and Mohamed Sanu, Austin Hooper. Hooper's gone. Sanu's gone. Uh, Freeman's gone. And, and you know, we, we were already giving Gurley like everything Freeman left behind. But there's more to account for yet. So uh, I, I don't know. I can't tell anyone like Gurley's going to be fine. He's not going to get hurt. Like he could just tip over on the first snap for all I know. But in the meantime, he broke a lot of tackles last year, like like 80th percentile type stuff, uh, generated yards after contact. He, he didn't he didn't play below the baseline of the same of the, the Rams rushing game last year. So there's no indication of skill set decline. And we see a huge uh, void of of just usage in this offense with Hooper. Uh, Sanu and Freeman gone so yeah I, th- I think uh, Gurley and Ridley both stand to benefit yeah and and then the the other thing with Gurley is I mean the Falcons don't and again this could be addressed during the draft like you mentioned but looking at that depth chart nobody Trash. nobody's gonna take like carries so other bad. than <laughs> yeah they were trying to make that happen so long last year and it was just oh guys you got to stop doing this yeah and then you got Ito Smith and Brian Hill like they're not going to be taking carries from Gurley other than like to give no. Gurley a breather type of thing such a bad depth chart on that team their running backs are I mean they're they're good like practice squad guys they got they got a collection of guys that are like yeah I'd like to have him on the practice squad but when you're when you're giving them like 400 snaps in a year it's just not good. They're, like I think their third best receiver is Olamide, and uh, there's no there's no indication that they're going to go with him. So if if it's Gage and if it's Hayden Hurst at tight end, there's just there's so much left to do still, and 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 Gurley won't have any choice but to be busy. I think. Uh, yep, I think that 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 sums it up well. Did you have any other uh, parting shots here on the Falcons before we head out? Not really. We were just doing this kind of uh, closer look at the Cleveland and Atlanta offense with some important free agency developments on their teams. But uh, yeah, next week we should we should have some some interesting fresh content when our our RotoWire staff NFL Dynasty League draft is is underway. So we we just started that. It's a slow draft, and and we'll have a lot of things to. Uh, you know brag or scream about or complain about by the time next week yes that is that is going to be fun uh when the content is fresh it's extra good um and then you know the following week we'll be getting ramped up for the draft and then we'll probably uh, record um an earlier one in the week the week of the draft and, and maybe uh one the day of the draft we'll, we'll see what holds there but we'll, we'll try to get uh, as many draft centric episodes as as we get closer to to go time uh with that um but thanks again for for listening uh, to the RotoWire NFL podcast from Mario Puig, I'm John McKechnie. We'll see you next week. is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of americans are deficient in if you are a woman over 35 magnesium will help you rediscover balance energy and vitality magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body including those involved in hormonal balance from functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.